0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be heading to the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, If you need a Bible, there's some in the end of your aisle, so feel free to grab those or borrow them. Um, But as we do that, I think that I get the unique opportunity of seeing God's providence in that not only coming out of our last series, which was Titled Overcoming Spiritual Depression. If you missed some or all of it, I encourage you to go back and look at it. It was a a great series where we got to learn from God's Word in the Psalms. Uh, But also, I get to be between Thanksgiving, kind of sandwiched between Thanksgiving, and now looking ahead to Christmas. And with that, if you're not familiar with the book of Philippians, I encourage you to do so. It's one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. And, And because what it teaches us, but especially this passage, is that while the Christian walk is not always one of happiness, it does teach us that it's inseparably one of joy. Um, so while you're turning there, I'd like to remind us of the context behind the passage that, uh, and the whole letter as a whole and that the church of Philippi really holds a special place in God's heart and, and God's, it holds a special place in God's heart too, uh, but it holds a special place in Paul's heart. He plants the church, it's the very first church that he plants in Europe And so with that, they actually support him throughout all of his missionary journeys. And they consistently, they check on him, they financially support him. And so Paul loves this church. And he writes this letter about 10 years after planning the church. And so he updates them with where he's at. He's imprisoned in Rome. And he's pretty sure that he's near the end of his life. And this being an attempt to leave some final instructions for those who step up to take his place. And yet, while all this this struggle and strife and hardship is going on for Paul, he's still able to pen one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. So let's dive in at the second half of verse 18. It says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So we look at a passage like this, and we see an encouraging and inspiring verse like 21, and we're like, okay, like to live as Christ, like, all right, I can do that, like I mean that. Like, and, but you know that feeling stops Right, where we're inspired, but then it just kind of like starts to dwindle. And it's almost, it's almost like this weight that starts to pull us underwater where we start to, to question and doubt. And, and then we start to ask, can, can a regular Christian like me even really experience to live as Christ? Like, can I, can I really embody that? And, and so we, we want to relate to it so bad that we almost try to force it onto our lives. Like, but then it just kind of rings hollow. and it it doesn't really work out. I mean, do you you know that moment where you're just longing for it, but it's not there? And so we'll we'll walk away from what's supposed to be an encouraging and inspiring passage, often more discouraged than before. If that's you, be encouraged. Uh, This passage really implores us to to find the answer, and I think we find it here, beginning with point number one. Our need to fix your eyes on joy. Point number one, fix your eyes on joy. This often requires a change in perspective, right? I mean, Look at Paul. Like, how does he display his joy? It's not by focusing on his circumstances, right? They're terrible. <laughs> and the same has to be true of us. We can't focus on ourselves and find this joy in ourselves or in the things around us I mean, could you imagine if the highest joy that you could ever find was in yourself? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and that's, that's not a good one. And, and so, but Paul was able to persevere not because he found creative ways to spend time in jail. He was able to persevere because he had fixed his eyes on something so great. He had fixed his eyes on Jesus. And as a result, perseverance was the only option. Just like the, the parable of the treasure in the field in Matthew 13, where a man goes out, he, he's walking around, he finds a treasure, and he's like, awesome. <laughs> and, and so he covers it back up, he runs home, he sells everything, and he buys the field. Right? He's not in it for the field. He's in it for the treasure. Paul is in a discouraging spot, places we find ourselves in, where we know the field is there and, and the field can be overwhelming, But Paul had his eyes fixed on the treasure. The treasure of Christ. But he knew he could persevere because he knew that that's what's waiting for him at the end of that finish line. I just have to endure till I get there. And then he knew encouraging him would be the Philippians praying for him, this whole church praying for him to keep going. And that he had the Holy Spirit working in his life, just like every single Christian does, to help him endure. That's why perseverance was the only option. Now I know this is trivial in comparison, but think about when you've had like a really long day at work. Right? It's two o'clock and you're like, Whew. so you, you like, all right, I'll look back again in two hours and it's two <laughs> fifteen. Like, what is happening? And so but but what we fix our eyes on at the end of the day is gonna make it easier or harder to persevere, right? So if I'm struggling to persevere and I know that I have to look forward to a nice steak dinner with the family, that's going to make it a lot easier to endure that day than the idea of eating leftover meatloaf that's been in the back of the fridge too long, all by myself, right? And well, it's just me and you, Netflix, right? And and no, like that would make it so much harder to endure. But Paul knew that the joy set before him was worth chasing with everything. Everything with all that he had, and he clung tightly to that joy. In other parts of the Bible that Paul writes, he'll call it my gospel. I mean, he clings with this white-knuckle grip to it that he calls it mine. And that'll lead him to say in Philippians chapter 3, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, I- I'm going to endure. I'm going to forget all this. and I'm going to press on toward that prize. But the reason that Paul can do that is because Christ did it first. Jesus set that model for us. Hebrews 12 will tell us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So so Jesus Christ, who, who is sweating blood because of what's about to come, and facing the full wrath for our sins. Why did he persevere? For for joy. He pushed through it for joy. He endured for joy. That's why this is such an essential core part of the christian faith it is the fuel of endurance and the best part is is it doesn't have to come from us in fact it can't come from us like we just talked about it comes because the founder and perfecter of our faith has made it possible but hear that not just the founder the perfecter the perfecter of enduring through joy the perfecter of our faith I mean, just think about the truth that even though we stood guilty before him, condemned sinners, God sent his son to be our redeemer, to to take our punishment and to place his righteousness, salvation upon us to make us right with God. And then that includes God adopting us into his family and then looking at us and saying, child. Guys, that, that is joy. That's unspeakable joy. Death to life. Guilty orphan to redeemed child. That's the gospel. So, so ditch the meatloaf. Of, of whatever you think will help you endure. And fix your eyes on that stake. I mean, in, 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 in seriousness, fix your eyes on the good news that tells us this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I can't add to that verse... <laughs> I mean, let that soak for a minute. That God murdered his son while you were his enemy. How can that not bring you joy? That we are reconciled and we will be saved much more by his life. What greater goal is there to press on toward? What else in the back of your mind could help you endure to a greater degree than that? This gospel, this truth, is what Paul fixed his eyes on. And it carried him through the worst, most tortured moments of his life. But it's intended to do the very same thing for us. So let's fight. Let's let's fight for joy. And the, the great part about this passage is it gives us two specific places to do that, to fight for joy, which will lead us to our second point, that we are to pursue joy in life. Point number two, pursue joy in life. You know, Paul drives this point home a few times, and just in this very passage, and telling us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll off a couple, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or, Next, to live is Christ. If I am to, third, live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Fourth, but to remain in the flesh, to remain alive, is more necessary on your account. And then finally, fifth, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So it's safe to say that Paul was fairly concerned with how he himself and the church lived their lives. Paul pursued Jesus passionately because he knew it's where his life was most fulfilled. He's like, there's there's nothing better than this. There's nothing higher than this. And that's a statement that's that's easy to say amen to and and we write that down and we're like, okay, like yeah. But how do we see that lived in our lives? Because that's not easy to do, right? Why is it so hard? Because it's only possible when we know and pursue Jesus intimately. There will never be joy in a lifeless, loveless faith. And we'll never pursue someone that we do not love. I pursue my wife because I love her. And I pursue Christ because I love him. But let's be honest, there are some days that that's way easier than others, right? I'm not as easy to love as I look. And, and some days it's hard. And we're just fighting apathy. And we're like, OK, like this, there's this joy that's supposed to permeate my faith. So where are you at? So if we're going to fight for joy, how do we do that here? How do we combat that? Think back to the parable of the treasure in the field in Matthew 13 again. I'm just going to read it, where, where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. What I want to point out is notice how the man doesn't solemnly or begrudgingly sell all that he has. Because it says everything, so he's not like, Man, I just got the kitchen cabinets redone. They were great. And and like, I just got all this stuff for Christmas and I haven't even gotten to open it yet. Like, no. How does he do it? In his joy, he sees the treasure and he's like, what? (laughs) Like, No one took this? And and so he's like, all right, like, see ya. I'm going to run home and I'm going to get rid of all of this. It's all garbage. eBay, buy it now. I don't even need to auction it off. And then he pursues the treasure with all that he has. The parable's there to remind us that the treasure is Christ. Our joy is Christ. He's the reason that we're able to say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Yes, like okay, like I want that. How do I know if I'm doing that because I want to? Well, four subpoints that we're going to look at are, are these questions coming out of the passage that, that let us kind of ask the question: Am I really doing that in my life? So the first one being: Who is being honored with my body? From verse 20. So just a quick example: um, If if you have the iPhone or iPad or I whatever. Um, if you don't have it, your neighbor will, so just ask them. Uh, but if you got the new update, you got that screen time app, right? Don't open it. Don't. It's depressing. Um, and so what it'll do is it'll tell you how much time you've wasted on your phone. And it's definitely God's invention. That's why it shows up on Sunday mornings to remind you as you're heading into church. Um, and, and so, But what it does, though, is it helps you identify, okay, here's what's being honored with my phone, right? And so in the same avenue, do that with your life. Take steps to identify who or what is being honored in your body. Next, who do I live for? Who do I live for? Coming from verse 21. What gets you up in the morning? When that alarm goes off and you don't want to get up, what reason do you roll out of bed for? What helps you or or not? And What helps you roll out of bed when all else is falling apart? We're working on our, our birth plan, right? And, and one of the things they tell you is, like, bring photos to put up on the wall to remind you, like, why you're doing this. <laughs> and, like, and so they just put them up and just, like, press on because of that. Like, what is your photo? What, what are you going to put up and say, like, I'm pressing on because of that? What do you run to when you are exhausted and it has been a long, hard day? Like, what do you run to? Because if we look back to the Greek, the original language of the verse "to live is Christ," we see that it's more than like this nice quotable statement that we slap on Facebook or we put on a T-shirt. But but in the original language, Paul was saying, "For me to live is Christ; is to breathe is air. I don't have one without the other. They are the same. For him to be alive meant to pursue Christ." Can we respond the same way? Next, do I serve the church for its progress? This is from verses 24 and 25. Now the church being the representation of Christ's body on earth. So it seems pretty straightforward that if Christ is this joy that we've set our hope on, that we love, serving his body would be as well. But there's those who will say, I love Jesus. I'm all about him. I read the Bible, I pray, I sing worship songs in the car, like I'm all about but church isn't for me. I'm not about that. I just don't like it. What? If I walk up to my eight months pregnant wife and say, I love you, but I'm not about your body. Just I can't. We're gonna have problems. (laughs) I'm going to be in three fights before I hit the door. A huge factor in our faith is not only being recognized as believers by our local church, but also serving for our fellow brother and sister's progress and joy in the faith. So, all that to say that church membership, it matters to Jesus. It matters. And last, does life mean fruitful or fruitless labor? I come from verse 22. Jesus will tell us in John 15 that producing fruit is necessary evidence that we abide in him. And just in case we couldn't quite figure out what that meant, Galatians gave us a couple to look out for. Right? So we have love, joy, peace, patience. Um, I prefer to call it long-suffering because I'm dramatic. Uh, and then we have kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control now that's not to ask this question is to say that if i don't practice my long sufferingness perfectly in the car that i need to question my salvation but what it is to say is that we need to evaluate our lives and ask is the trajectory of my life is it growing closer to jesus or is it fruitless And this isn't the Bible saying like, okay, here's a rule book. If you follow it, you're set. Here's your fruit. No, it's a gift of grace. God does not want any of us to be falsely assured of something that we are not. God wants to give us the ability to check our spiritual health in practical ways. To take our spiritual pulse as it were. And then after we get the opportunity to focus on what it looks like to live our lives in pursuit of joy, we can look to the second area of application that this passage gives us. In point number three, to embrace joy in death. Point number three, embrace joy in death. So we as humans, we we will fight death with everything that we have, right? Tooth and nail. And this is a real statistic, by the way. Uh, just to give you an example of it, Americans spent $3.5 trillion on health care in 2017 alone. And that averages out to $10,606 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. So it's safe to say that we are ardently opposed to the idea of death. But this is a place where we see just how countercultural, just how opposite our society really is to Christianity. Paul will say in this letter, quote, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So so for Christians, we should be hard-pressed. We should be torn between wanting to remain for fruitful labor or to depart and be with Christ. That's a hard thing to even say we desire, but it's even harder one to actually desire, right? And I have a daughter on the way. I can't wait to meet her. We have family and people we love who depend on us and we care about and friends and those we don't want to leave. But we have got to know deep in our soul that there's something even greater than these with fixing our eyes on and running toward. Why? Because we get Christ. We get the hope that we've set our joy on. We get joy itself in all of His fullness. Where the promises of Scripture are fulfilled perfectly in front of our eyes. And yet, even as believers, We are so often caught up trying to avoid the reality of our own God-given mortality. Let me challenge you, face it. Face it, stare the reality of your death in the eyes and never underestimate the sanctifying power of your frailty. That's why James will tell us that you do not know what tomorrow will bring What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If we are aware that tomorrow literally is not a given, how would that change the way we live today? Better yet, how should it change the way we live today? And specifically looking at this passage, the question that we have to ask becomes, if I died today... I died on the way home from church would it really be gain because if we struggle to answer this question we have grossly overestimated this world and church we have grossly grossly underestimated our Christ now in all this if you struggle to find joy in your faith, the last thing that I want to sit here and do is depress you. But what I want to do is I want to help us realize that we're not just here to enjoy gifts on earth or to store up treasures in heaven for whenever we get around to going there. We're called to fix our eyes on heaven's joy. We're called to pursue him with our lives, with all that we have, And finally, to embrace him in death. Joy isn't just for the extraordinary Christian. It's for the ordinary one. If you're a Christian, it's for you. And so the takeaway isn't one of, okay, now I just, I, I know about joy now, so I just need to believe God more and it'll like show up one day like an Amazon package or, or I just gotta like find it in my Christian well in my soul and draw it out. No, this passage tells you the opposite. It says find your joy in Christ. As we talked about often in our last series, I encourage you to devote yourself to God's word. I exhort you, devote yourself to God's word. If you're not sure where to go specifically, you can be in the Psalms because there are no Psalms for the legalistic heart, but there are plenty for the rejoicing heart. Don't live a life in fear of death. In fact, the other way around, I encourage you to live for it. There's a a hymn, it's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I'd like to just read the last verse as you most definitely do not want me to sing it. (laughs) But it goes, uh, For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, when he comes at last. Now this hymn is one I think only a joyful heart like Paul's can truly sing. The heart that that clings to the gospel with that white knuckle grip calls it my gospel and, and fights for joy through the highest and the lowest of our lives. And that joyful heart can say with Paul that no matter what comes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's talking about that last line there, till our faith is turned to sight. So as we close today, we're gonna sing um, a different hymn. We're gonna sing the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And as we respond to the word, let that be your prayer. That like heart of my own heart, whatever befall, whatever comes, Christ be my vision. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for speaking to us through your word. And thank you for for using it to reveal Jesus, not only as a savior, but as our treasure pray that we see Jesus more and more clearly as the treasure worth giving up everything for. That he's worth pursuing with all that we have. And then finally embracing him like a child running into the arms of a father in death. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.